it's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, July 23rd, 2012. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Sorry, making last-minute adjustments. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of bizarre things being said about God, really strange things being done with Scripture, and the places where this is taking place, well, in churches or in popular books by really popular authors, things like that, just strange stuff going on. And so what we are encouraging our listeners to do is to slow down, slow down, take what somebody is saying Put it in context. Do some research. Check some good scholarly commentaries. Go to your library. And if you're not sure about something, take the time to really flesh it out to find out if what you're being told is true or is some fanciful interpretation designed to tickle and scratch itching ears in order to make a buck. I mean, there's a lot of folks out there like that. Trust me, I've... Uh, noted and dealt with a lot of them over the course of my career. So, all right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. In fact, I kind of need to get into it, and here's the reason why. Um, the last two episodes of Fighting for the Faith, I gave you my preliminary uh, take on the uh, the runaway New York Times bestseller, The Harbinger. On Friday, I interviewed Rabbi Jonathan Kahn. I solicited your feedback, and I've got a lot of it. I got a lot of feedback from you, the listeners of Fighting for the Faith, and it's very encouraging. It tells me that you guys are listening with the sermon. It tells me that uh, you guys are listening with one eye on the scriptures, and you're paying attention to what's going on. Now, one of the criticisms I get from time to time, and I don't do a lot of interviews, um, it, but when I do interviews with people who are, well, shady, dicey, may not even be um you know true brothers in Christ things like that um that the expectation is that when I do an interview I'm supposed to do it as if I am a you know a center linebacker and this is a football game and you expect to see smashes and crashes and and and, and, and well <laughs> theological violence you know things like that that's not how I do interviews. I do interviews. Uh, the be the better sports metaphor is like, well, it's a baseball game, and when I'm interviewing, I'm pitching. And so the idea here is is that if I can get somebody who's a uh, you know maybe um, not exactly uh, kosher, <laughs> notice the theme there, not exactly kosher teacher or author or whatever to uh, come to the plate, and uh, then my job is to pitch to them. And I am not going to put it on a tee and let them hit it out of the park. No, sometimes my pitches 
are low and inside. Sometimes they're a little bit high and inside, designed to brush back the hitter, things like that. And the idea is this, is that if I can take the time to craft really good questions that get to the nub of the matter, then that person will either stand or fall, and their teaching will either stand or fall, based upon their performance not mine. Does that make sense? So the idea is that I got I got to throw hard pitches and uh, I and at the same time because the scriptures require that uh, when I'm uh, talking to somebody that I do it with gentleness, respect, uh, uh you know, basically extend to them and show to them the same mercy and kindness that's been shown to me by Christ. Uh, you know, this is not the, you know, when I'm talking with a, an actual human being. This is not academic. This is not philosophical. This is the real deal. And so, part of what I want to do when I do an interview is to model what it sounds like, model what it you know the the overall tenor of something when you're talking with somebody with different theological views, the, with this understanding that Christ died for them just as much as Christ died for me. So. The idea here is is that um, you know when we're dealing with the theoretical and the ideas, we have a tendency at times to have fun with uh, really bad ideas, and the people who are promoting them end up on the wrong end of that stick. When I talk to somebody who's a you know a heretic or somebody who you know I may or may not know the general you know <clears throat> scope of where they're at and what they're teaching, the idea is is that. It's not that I'm extending them the benefit of the doubt. It's that I'm going to treat them with the same respect that uh, you know that I would expect when uh, somebody would talk to me. So that's the idea, and I think I pulled it off on Friday. Now, that being said, um, you know the, I don't want anyone to think that I'm endorsing the Harbinger. In fact, I made it clear on Thursday's program that. You know what I really think about the book. Um, it, let me give you a metaphor, if you can, if you can kind of boil this down. My metaphor regarding the book, The Harbinger, is it's kind of like those ancient mysteries uh, programs on television that air sometime or on like the Sci-Fi Channel or the History Channel or you know, or the the the, the so-called archaeological things that Simka Yakubovich finds. The idea is this: is that um, if this was a television program. Uh, if this was appearing on a television program, the, the opening of the television program would start off something to the effect of, was the Bigfoot a flying co-pilot with Amelia Earhart when she crashed into the Pacific Ocean? What does the Loch Ness Monster have to say about unlocking the secrets of... Y you get what I'm saying. That's really what I think the right genre is for that particular book, The Harbinger. Now, I understand he's trying to make a biblical case, but, well... I don't think he pulls it off, um, and there's many reasons why I don't think he pulls it off. Because at the end of the day, what I saw is some very interesting things that have occurred, and him creating a very elaborate—and I do mean that—an uh, elaborate narrative around these so-called harbingers that he found. But at the end of the day, we've got a sycamore tree that was knocked down by the 9/11, uh, uh, you know, by one of the twin towers. Uh, it was replaced with a tree that is um, that is a conifer, maybe a pine or something like that, and it's it's not done in the same spirit as what we see in Isaiah nine ten, um, and and it's a little bit of a stretch the way you know the, kind of the verbal gymnastics that he goes through to get get it to fit Isaiah nine ten. Now the most interesting thing uh, that he pointed out. 
And, uh, you know, I tried to debunk it and couldn't debunk it. But here's the idea is, is that from the, you know, after the 9-11 disaster on September 17th, which was the 29th of Elul uh, in the Hebrew calendar, that's when the uh, Fed lowered the interest rates in order to, you know, kind of get the economy to come back after the attacks. And seven years to the day on the Hebrew calendar, again, 29th of Elul, in 2008, was when the stock market took a dip and the, the, the number of points that it lost was 777. So now, what does that mean? Um, it means that, you know, seven years to the day, and according to the way the Hebrew calendar works, the stock market took a crash, you know, after lowering their interest rates to raise the, you know, to get the economy going, and it resulted in a crash where they lost 777 points. Coming up with some kind of, uh, yeah, for lack of a word, of, of, a, of a divine interpretation of the event is is uh, going to be tough to do. Now, he attempts to do this in the book, and, and he links it to what is known as the Shemitah. And the concept behind that is is that uh, uh, you know the Shemitah is linked to the con the concept of the Sabbath, and uh, so just like every seven days on the seventh day, the uh, the Shabbat, people are supposed to take a rest, at least in, according to the Levitical uh, 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 Mosaic Covenant. The idea is is that so is the land, and then you know, and then you've got you know, then you've got the uh, jubilee, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, that's supposed to be where you know people release you know debts and things like that, and so he tries to link it, link that financial disaster to what he calls the, you know the the concept of the shemitah from the Mosaic Covenant. The problem is is it doesn't work, and the reason why it doesn't work is because here's the question. Is, you know, are we then to assume that every seven years God is going to cause a financial disaster to fall on the United States in order for there to be a um, a releasing or canceling of debts? Well, hardly. I mean, when did the United States of America uh, make a covenant with God and where was the stipulation laid out that it applies to the, you know, the United States? So really at the end of the day, what you're left with is one of those curiosities, Okay. You know, seven you know, seven years to the day using the Hebrew calendar, there's a financial crash after nine eleven, after you know, from when they lowered the interest rates, and they lost seven hundred and seventy seven points. You you push too hard on it, and the whole thing comes crashing down. I mean, there's so much problematic stuff going on here that I consider it to be at the end of the day, a sensationalistic narrative that, you know, is trying to, it really, well, from the way I put it on my Facebook wall, takes the biblical butter and spreads it really, really, really thin. And, and you know, and the reality is this, Isaiah 9.10 has absolutely zero to do, nothing to do, nothing whatsoever to do with the United States of America. And so what I'm going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, let's talk, let's talk about what we're going to do here. Um, I'm going to kind of keep on this theme, and there's some a particular reason why I want to do this. And, and those of you who've sent me emails pointing out other teachings of Rabbi Jonathan Kahn that would definitely make you know his overall teaching to be you know at at the very minimum problematic. I appreciate the input. I'm fully aware of the videos, and I will be circling back and dealing with them in a future edition of Fighting for the Faith. I may p play part of one today, but here's the idea, is that when you're doing discernment work, okay, when you're doing discernment work, 
there's a kind of a metaphor that has been talked about. And here's the idea is that error is going to circle the globe three or four times before the truth gets its boots on. I don't know why this is exactly true, but I find that this is there's some wisdom behind this. And here's the idea. Three weeks ago, I knew nothing about Jonathan Kahn, knew nothing about the Harbinger, knew nothing about what was, you know, about the book or whatever. And it was only as a result of people insisting that I need to take a look at this and weigh in that I first decided to do some research. Now, when I did my research, I found that the uh, the, the critique of Jonathan Kahn can fall in two different directions. And I think it's important to note that when you're doing discernment work, it's important to keep problems in some sense separate and not mix them or confuse them. So here's the idea, is that the two programs that we just did, Thursday and Friday, are designed to be helpful to the topic of the harbinger itself and what uh, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn put forward in that book. Okay, now that we have that established, you know, dealing with the topic of the book itself, now we can go back and we can take address kind of the bigger issue. And believe me when I tell you that there is a bigger issue, and that has to do with the overall tenor, tone, and topics and content of the teaching of uh, of Rabbi Jonathan Kahn. And uh, let, let, let me tell you, you know, it's, it, there's, well, it's, it's not good. And so, but what I wanted to do was address the topic of the harbinger by itself before we circled back and took a closer look at some of the things that Jonathan uh, Kahn is teaching. Now, I got to be careful as I weigh into this, and there's a reason why, is because within Christianity, within the scope of the church, you know, within the visible church, there is a subculture, okay? And the, the subculture is Messianic Judaism. Now, I don't know a lot about that subculture, and the last thing I want to do is to just basically charge in like a bull in a china shop uh, with that particular subculture, its teachers, and some of the things that are going on there, and um, and end up, well, you know, causing confusion myself. And so it's important that I take my time and get a feel for the subculture and some of its topics, some of its leaders, and and you know what's going on in that particular group, so that I don't, so that my critique and uh, and the things that I bring to bear discernment wise ultimately are able to have an impact for the good within that subculture. But at the same time, I don't want to, uh, I you know, you got to be careful when you're dealing with a, uh, the topic of messianic Judaism because there's there's a lot of confusion uh, outside in evangelicalism regarding messianic Judaism. There's a whole group of people who basically say if somebody's a messianic Jew, they're untouchable, which is not true. Um, not true at all, but at the same time, you got to be careful that you don't, um, create confusion where the, the, the critique that comes back at me is that I'm being anti-Semitic. I'm not anti-Semitic. In fact, Hebrew is, uh, you know, one of these things that I enjoy and love studying and, uh, to the point where, you know, I even, uh, study modern Hebrew in order that I can speak it with people, but that's a you know for another topic. In fact, somebody the somebody the other day on my Facebook wall had uh, commented on that uh, maybe I should give impromptu Hebrew lessons during bad sermons. That that would be more interesting than the bad sermon. <laughs> so, yeah, 
Ay, ay, ay. Anyway, so okay, so th- that's the idea. Is is that uh, you know I'm fully aware of the gr- of the greater scope of the issues reg- you know surrounding Rabbi Khan and his teaching, and uh, they will be the topics of uh, future editions of Fighting for the Faith, and they will be done in the right way as to provide some assistance for those in the Messianic Judaism. Because from what I can see in my preliminary assessment is is that you know there's some crazy teaching going on in that subculture within Christianity. And uh, I think Rabbi Khan is uh, is one of the suspects that is guilty of providing or, or teaching some of the confusing doctrines. In fact, uh, the, the word on the street is, is that his book, The Harbinger, has been somewhat divisive within the Messianic Jewish community. So uh, if you know, if you are a Messianic Jew or you know somebody who is and that, you know, and they would like to talk with me and help me better understand these things, I'm, you know, send me an email. I'd love to have a conversation. Okay, so what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, kind of, you know, kind of buttoning up this, the topic regarding the Harbinger, we're going to first start off with a William Tapley uh, song. Yeah, this is one of the things that we do as a service uh, to our listeners and, well, to uh, William Tapley himself, is that we do audience enhancement work. And uh, if you're familiar with uh, Fighting for the Faith, William Tapley is a regular. He is a Roman Catholic who seems to be kind of a self-styled prophecy expert and uh, in, in calls himself the third eagle of the apocalypse and the po- co-prophet of the end times. And uh, he, apparently he's... Um, self-proclaimed a biblical numerology expert and 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 he's uh, quite the uh, expert at the Casio keyboard and so if, whenever he writes a new song we always uh, premiere it here at Fighting for the Faith as a service to our listeners then i'm going to switch gears and we're going to be taking a look at a, a press release uh, from the uh, you know the the uh, Christian Newswire entitled Christian Uprising to Take Back Hollywood now that is kind of a thought bridge, if you would, to what you know, to where I want to go as we discuss the bigger issue of the harbinger. I'm going to switch from that to your to some of your email responses regarding my uh, my uh, my interview of Rabbi Khan, and then I'm going to play at kind of a, well, it's not even kind of it's an 18 minute long segment from from this weekend's edition of the White Horse Inn. That where they played audio from a lecture that Dr. Michael Horton gave, and I'm going to take a snippet out of it, an 18-minute long snippet, and here's the reason why, is because Dr. Horton in this lecture um, that he recently delivered and that was broadcast on this week's edition of, of uh, The White Horse Inn, he does a fantastic job of dealing with the biblical covenants that are taught and laid out in Scripture, from the Abrahamic covenant to the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah. And it's this is this is the keystone piece that needs to be put in place here so that you can really understand why Rabbi Jonathan Kahn's book, The Harbinger, and its concepts totally break down. It's a confusion of law and gospel, and I would even argue it's a confusion of of the Mosaic Covenant with the New Covenant, which is critical, mucho importante stuff that we need to cover. And Dr. Horton just lays it out in a very succinct and easy-to-understand way, and you you need to listen to it. And then uh, when we get to hour number two, we're going to be listening to a good sermon by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, 
um, entitled, Which is Easier to Say? This is a sermon on the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, which I think is just like a beautiful big red bow. Uh, you know, to to package up this edition of Fighting for the Faith, because it all actually works together. So without any further ado, we're going to dive into the program proper. Here we go. That's great, it starts with an earthquake. Birds and snakes and airplane. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I have a hurricane, listen to yourself, turn world to its own needs. Dummy, serve your own needs, beat it up and not speak. And I feel fine. Boom, 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 boom. All right, yeah, that's our uh, William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and co-prophet of the End Times Update. Now, uh, brace yourselves, folks. You know, and <laughs> I should play the warning, but you know, if you're not familiar with the just mad skills that uh, William Tapley has on the Casio, you are in for a treat. That's all I got to say. And uh, we've played, uh, you know, other musical... Um, Offerings put out by William Tapley in the past here at Fighting for the Faith, and you know this is no different. So, so that you know, the idea here is that um, apparently Mitt Romney um, had one of his ad ca- uh, campaign ads yanked from YouTube, uh, and the claim was that well, it was it, it well it had infringed upon a copyright, and so uh, the music copyright you know the music that was playing in the background apparently there was a copyright infringement. YouTube yanked. The Mitt Romney ad, and uh, and so William Tapley has put together his own music and is offering it to the Mitt Romney campaign, and the name of it is Mitt Romney, a hero in my mind, and this is his musical offering, which he's hoping that the Mitt Romney campaign will pick up and use in their future um, ad commercials for the Romney campaign. So without any further ado, here's the world premiere of Mitt Romney. A Hero in My Mind by William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and Co-Prophet of the End Times. Can't you see we're at the end? 
Wars and rumors of war look out for the signs he gave. Jesus gave. Are you saved? If you keep your wig trim, you'll be safe. You'll go with him. World War Three. That's Obama's plan for you and me. What a crock. It's the only hope he's got. He can't be elected on his record. It's a crime. He should resign. That's why I'm voting for Mitt Romney. He's a hero in my mind. Important to note that the uh, Romney campaign, um, we have nothing to do with <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> Every time that guy gets on the Casio. By the way, he's uh, kind of upgraded his um, his technology here. He's learned how to use a green screen. <laughs> so, yeah. <clears throat> anyway, so yeah, I just thought I'd pass that along for you. Maybe we should move to the next segment. Here, here we go. From the Christian Newswire, the headline reads, Christian Uprising to Take Back Hollywood. Now, believe it or not, this has something to do with the bigger um, topic that we're dealing with today here at Fighting for the Faith. This is, again, from the Christian Newswire. You can find this at christiannewswire.com. And uh, apparently uh, you can contact David Wood of Pan Pacific Film Festival in order to, you know, if you want to f- help... Christians take back Hollywood. But see, here's the question. Um, I mean, with a headline like that, my question immediately is, when exactly did Hollywood belong to Jesus and to Christians? You see, here's the idea. Okay. When I think of, like, wars, okay, now work with me here for a second here. This is kind of a war theme. When I think of wars, like World War II, okay, you think of, well, Hitler invading France. You think of Hitler invading, you know, large portions of, of Europe, right? You know, Belgium and other and other places, okay? And so the idea here is is that, you know, if if French were to say, we're going to rise up and we're going to take France back from Hitler, okay, now understand that there were French troops who who engaged in this uh, in you know this effort, um, and so the idea is taking back France from Hitler assumes when you talk that way that at one time France belonged to France, right? So when somebody says that they're going to take back Hollywood, that type of language assumes that Hollywood at one time belonged to Christians. I'm not familiar with this time when Hollywood, well, belonged to Christians. I'm just not aware of it. So I'm not sure how you can take it back. Now, if you're thinking, well, what does this have to do with the greater theme of the program today? Well, everything, because here's the idea. When you look at you know books like The Harbinger and you talk to people who think along these ta- lines, they talk about taking America back or you know Christians need to take America back. Now, when exactly was the United States a Christian nation? A Christian nation would be the one where Jesus is clearly the king, right? 
well, see, it never was a Christian nation. It was a Christ, It was a nation that was founded by a lot of Christians. There was a lot of Christian minds behind the United States and you know leaders at its inception, no doubt about it. But that being the case, it was never a Christian nation. In fact, one of the primary tenets was freedom of religion and the idea that the state couldn't, well, and wouldn't, you know, say that this religion or that religion is the one that it needs to be followed by its citizens. That being the case, when the United States was founded constitutionally, you could be whatever your conscience told you to be. You could be a Roman Catholic. You could be a Protestant. You could be a Lutheran. You could be an Anglican. You could be a Baptist. You could be a Jew. You could, you know, you understand what I'm saying? And so that being the case, if, you know, constitutionally the United States was set up where it could be anything or you could be anything, that actually that idea in the Bill of Rights negates the concept that, well, the United States was a Christian nation. No, it was a Christ, It was a nation with a lot of Christians. Big difference. Christian nation and uh, uh, the difference between a Christian nation and a nation with a lot of Christians, big difference. Okay, but by the way, we're going to get into the covenantal aspect of this later today. But let me read this. Los Angeles, July 23rd, 2012, via the Christian Newswire. For years, Hollywood dictated the moral compass of the nation, openly rejected religious films, and offered little family-friendly value. This is nothing new. Christians have been attempting to penetrate Hollywood for as long as anyone can remember and to no avail. Um, um... Well, then how do you take back if you've never been able to penetrate to any avail? You see, the words mean things, by the way. But if you are one of the people that have been praying for the entertainment industry, your prayer is now showing fruit. The Christians among the film industry are passionate to bring change to Hollywood and are coming together to reclaim Hollywood for Jesus Christ. Hence came the birth of the Pan-Pacific Film Festival, the Pan-Pacific Film Festival, or the PPFF, is an annual faith-based film festival in the neighboring communities of Hollywood. It is a place where Christian filmmakers can now benefit from a Hollywood forum where they can showcase their creative talent and help spread their positive message in a grander scale. It's incredible what God is doing. Ken, a founder of the PPFF, said, We started out just wanting to place... Uh, a place to screen Christian movies, but now the PPFF is a home for all creative believers, a center for Christian professionals to work on their craft, and an international provider of high-quality, family-faith-friendly content. This year's festival is held at the Santa Anita Westfield Mall in Arcadia. That's not Hollywood, by the way. In fact, I yeah, grew up in parts of Arcadia. Um, on October 18th 20 through the 21st, acti activities consist of film screenings of faith-based films, Many concerts by Christian artists, workshops led by Hollywood producers, Christian talent search, and much, much more. The last night of the event will feature an award ceremony which has been referred to by some of, uh, as the Academy Awards of Christian Films. The ceremony honors the best films submitted in the film festival. Now, here's the deal. I have absolutely no problem whatsoever with Christians as a vocation, making films. I think it's a great thing to do. And I think it's tough for Christians to work in Hollywood considering you know, where the moral, um, well, slide that uh, Hollywood has been engaging in well, ever since I was a kid. But so, I, you know, I, I get that. And so there's nothing wrong with this. But see, listen, that, you know, celebrating good, well-crafted films that are produced by Christians is one thing. 
But saying you're going to take back Hollywood, take it back? Well, that assumes that we've had it, that at one time we possessed it and some rascally person took it away from us. And somehow Hollywood is now, you know, is being occupied by alien and and hostile forces. Uh, Hollywood is Hollywood. By the way, just in case you're not familiar with this concept, the reason why Hollywood makes the movies that it makes is to make money. That's the idea. And so they, the people in Hollywood who make movies know full well that certain messages and movies crafted a particular way um, make more money than others. And so the idea is, is that at, you know, as the overall tenor, moral tenor of the United States goes down the toilet, um, well, so do the movies because they can Hollywood can make movies by ha- you know, and they have a broad appeal even if they're morally um, deficient. You, you understand what I'm saying? So he, listen, here's the idea. This is confusion. This is confusion. This is a great idea to make films, you know, that are family friendly and faith friendly. No problem with that whatsoever. But let's be real here. We're not taking Hollywood back. And by the way, you don't take Hollywood back, or you don't even take it back anyway. But here's the idea. If you're, if you're concerned about the moral decline in the United States of America, and you should be, the way you solve the problem is not by making faith-friendly films. No. The way you address the issue is by proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins and calling our neighbors who are in Hollywood and other places around the country to repent and to be forgiven. It's the same, you basically bring the same message that the apostles brought when they preached in the hostile Roman Empire. I mean, think about it this way. I mean, look back at history. Read the book of Acts, okay? Christianity did not start with, um, you know, tens and twenties and thirties of thousands of people Christianity start with a whole, with a group of believers in an upper room and the Holy Spirit came on them and they preached the gospel with power okay called sinners to repentance and then they 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 basically set up churches where the gospel was being preached sound doctrine was taught where heresies were put heresies and heretics were put out and rebuked you, you, you get you know what I'm saying see the problem is is that the United States nor Hollywood are covenant communities within, you know, they're not uh, with God, but the church is. See, the church right now is in full-blown apostasy. If you want to see the United States turn around, it begins by you getting rid of that lousy, good-for-nothing pastor who won't preach God's word and doesn't teach the gospel and teaches heresy and is engaged in vision casting and all that kind of stuff. No kidding. You get rid of that guy and you put in a guy who will preach the word in season and out of season and proclaim the good news even to you, even though you've been a Christian for a long time, because you need to hear it daily, weekly, constantly, right? And will preach sound doctrine and not basically entertain the world, but feed Christ's sheep. That's what repentance looks like within the covenant community that really matters. All right, so anyway, I just want to get that off my mind. So what we're going to do right now, is we are going to take a break, and when we come back, I'm going to read, begin, we're going to start this today, but I'm going to begin reading some of the emails that I've been receiving from you all regarding my interview uh, with uh, Jonathan Kahn of uh, the book The Harbinger, and uh, and let you guys uh, chime in 
uh, regarding that. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Hey, do you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst, holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity. Instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm. You're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. (laughs) You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no! And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You have so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power responding, Chester. You have so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies and they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. Uh. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And 
we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. All right, we're back. Uh, warning, uh, the Bible's not about you, and it's not about the United States of America. Just saying. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And it's important to note also that we are still in the middle of our second half of our a summer bake sale to help us get through the lean, mean, financially thin summer months. And if you don't already have this year's Pirate Christian Radio t-shirt, <laughs> you are missing out. The way to get one, by the way, is to go to Pirate Christian, not Fighting for the Faith, but PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash bake sale. And you can see the fantastic work of Pastor Daniel Price of Trinity Church in uh, Northwest Arkansas. And uh, got to tell you, you know, it's a it, fantastic T-shirt. I've been wearing mine out in public, and I've gotten some comments. And so, got to tell you, if you don't have one, you might want to have one. There, it's only nineteen ninety five, and that includes shipping and handling. And so, again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale. And uh, keep in mind that the proceeds, all proceeds, go to help us get through the lean, mean summer months here at Fighting for the Faith. Okay, moving along. That is our email update music. Just so you know, this is like segment one. Uh, I've gotten so many good, or I've received. And it's gotten is not a really good word. I gotta work. I gotta clean up. I found my time. Sometimes my verbs and nouns don't agree, and then I sling into slang. And <laughs> anyway, I've received a ton of email on the Harbinger, and I've selected quite a few of them that are excellent. But I can't get to every one of them today, so we're gonna have to kind of spread this out. Anyway, uh, the first email uh, response from you, the listeners of Fighting for the Faith, regarding the Harbinger and my interview with Rabbi Khan. Uh, this is from uh, uh, Deirdre, uh, D-E-I-R-D-R-E, and I do not know where Deirdre is from, but the uh, email basically says this, Jesus on a national level. Bingo. Exactly. Jesus on a national 
level. Now, narcissus, by the way, if you're a new listener to Fighting for the Faith and you haven't heard me use that term yet, it's a combination of two words, narcissism and eisegesis, or narcissistic eisegesis. It gets squished into one word, and it becomes narcissus. And the idea is this, is there's a whole slew of people out there who uh, call themselves pastors or leaders, and I call them Führers here. Uh, that's because that's what the German word is for it, and there's a good reason why. But anyway, the idea is this, is that they're out there, and they'll take every passage of Scripture and somehow make it about you. Um, it's weird to watch this. You know, the, so the idea is you need to learn how to be like David, you know, because apparently the, the story of David and Goliath is, well, that's the story of you. And, you know, the story of Samson, well, they don't like to make that about you, but they try to make that about you. But the weird part is when they take passages about Jesus and make it about you. Here's the thing. You ain't in Scripture. I know that's bad grammar, but it's true. You you are not in there. And um, you are vaguely referred to within the big mass of humanity that's born dead in trespasses and sins. But none of the Bible stories are about you. Not one of them. And... Um, and Deirdre here has pointed out that what is going on in the harbinger is another form of narcissism, and it's narcissism, narcissistic eisegesis on a on a national level. Deirdre goes on to say, if America or any other modern country could be paralleled to an Old Testament nation, it would fall under the category of not Israel. America has more in common with Assyria in the. Isaiah 9 passage than it does with Israel. Yes, it does. If you know anything about the history of Assyria, Assyria was known for its violence and evil and idolatry, and so is the United States. And, well, here's the other thing. Assyria was not founded as a nation that was in covenant with God, and neither was the United States. So, yeah, if you want, if you don't believe, uh, you know, that the United States is a violent, wicked, and evil nation... May I just point to the 55 million dead infants in the United States at the hands of abortionists since the, the Roe v. Wade uh, you know, decision by the Supreme Court? I, I think we could clearly say that the United States is a violent and evil nation. Anyway, um, so that's the idea here is that uh, you know, so if, if America has more in common with Assyria in the Isaiah 9 passage than it does with Israel, if we want some insight into the pattern of how God is dealing with America today, it would be wiser to study how God dealt with the Philistines or the Amorites or the Hittites in times past. Do we need another lesson on the Bible is not about you, uh, Deirdre? Uh, apparently we do, but great email, succinct to the point, and yeah, exactly. You know, I don't know what it is with Americans. They seem to think that they can read themselves in any biblical passage, you know, individually as well as collectively as a nation. That's not a good thing. Anyway, Sally writes, and I'm not sure where Sally is from, but she says, We're listening right now about halfway through the, um, uh, the, the con, uh, interview, and she calls it the con, uh, very disappointed to hear con's con. He is so slippery, babbles too much, never answers questions directly. You are very gracious, smart questions, and you let him talk and talk and talk to his own detriment, sadly. I started out liking him and giving him uh, the benefit of the doubt, but not so much after his performance. Should have expected a con given his connection with Farah. I think more than anything, he went for the easy money using the Wilkerson method, easy pickings in the current political, cultural, climate. A great program, though. Anyway, Sally, uh, thank you for your email. And, yeah, you'll notice, if you go back and listen, okay, go back and listen to the interview, especially the first half 
of the program. Doesn't do uh, yeah, Rabbi Khan does not do a good job of directly answering my questions. In fact, um, I would even go so far as to say he didn't exactly answer them. And uh, the first question I asked was, is he a prophet? He said that he wasn't. But then I followed it up immediately with basically, well, if you're not a prophet, well, what are you doing to clean up the record with, out there with all these, you know, these television show hosts from TBN on down who are promoting you as a prophet? And uh, if you listen carefully to his answer, his answer isn't exactly an answer. It's he's kind of hemming and humming and and you know there's verbal gymnastics going on there. And then when I point out that the fact that uh, you know even though he's said on other discernment radio programs that um, that he doesn't believe that the United States is in a covenant with God, I point out and I pointed out on Thursday, that he draws that circle really tight to draw the connections between Israel and uh, the United States. And the, kind of the basic premise behind the book is that, well, what if God took up the Founding Fathers on their offer to dedicate the United States to God? Yeah, and so my, you know, the problem is, is that the way he's, that the way it's written and the way that parallel is written in his book, and it's reinforced later uh, when he uh, talks about the inauguration of George Washington, where it took place, and you know, and what he said, and things like that, so he he even reinforces that that concept, you know, throughout the book, and strongly reinforces it when he gets to the section where he talks about the little stone chapel where uh, George Washington was sworn in in New York. Anyway, so yeah, anyway, he doesn't really he didn't really do a fine job of addressing the tougher questions. In fact, I think he was somewhat evasive. Monica writes, and I do not know where Mo I do know that Monica is apparently not from the United States, because the uh, the the subject reads Jonathan Kahn. What about Canada? So Monica from Canada writes, you asked Jonathan Kahn if America had a special relationship with God. Great question. Here's another: Does Canada have a special relationship with God? Uh, number one, we were settled by the same Puritans and Lutherans and Anglicans and Catholics. Okay, so we got some common ground with the Canadians up there. So we have a church on every corner. We said the Lord's Prayer daily in school longer than the United States did, and our national anthem contains the following <laughs> imprecations. Uh, God keep our land glorious and free, ruler supreme, who hearest humble prayer, hold our dominion in thy loving care. And number five, our administration supports Israel. So yeah, I mean, so that's a good question. I mean, um, are the can, are the Canadians uh, are they in a special relationship with God too, considering uh, their common historical roots? Uh, fine question. The answer would be to both. Neither Canada nor the uh, nor the United States of America are in a covenant relationship with God that even remotely parallels Israel. It's not like that at all. All right, Dan from Georgia. Danny from Georgia writes. Here's what he says. I listened to your interview with the author of The Harbinger recently and wanted to add my two cents worth as well. One thing that troubles me is how he interprets the Bible. Obviously, the verses in Isaiah has nothing to do with America, but with the northern kingdom of Israel. I would put uh, the author in the same category with the word of faith heretic Perry Stone. I believe both are saved, yet have a wild imagination. Stone used to preach at my former Word of Faith church two to three times per year, so I'm very acquainted with his hermeneutics. So here's what really bothers me. An educated friend of ours who is now a member of the Hebrew Roots cult, she and her husband believe that since there are parallels in the first exodus with the book of Revelation, i.e. the children of Israel going to the wilderness, that they too are going to have to go to the wilderness during the tribulation. They have purchased an expensive RV and are ready for their wilderness experience as soon as their rabbi says that it's time. 
This is one of the many ways in which the Hebrew roots cult twists and allegorizes scripture. These friends of mine are not Jews, but they are so brainwashed they think that they are spiritual Jews. They also believe that the name Jesus means pig in Hebrew and will only speak his Hebrew name, Yeshua. So back to the point. These are not dumb, illiterate people. They are wealthy and educated. This type of Bible interpretation is dangerous. I know the author claims that it's fiction, but he also claims 90% of it to be nonfiction. Though I would agree with your assessment, the author is not a whack job in the Patricia King, William Tapley, Harold Camping category. His hermeneutics do have the potential to cause damage. So I'm not sure if the author of The Harbinger is in the Hebrew Roots movement, but he does seem to be of the same stripe. Interesting points, Danny, and a good email. Great. By the way, you folks listening to Fighting for the Faith, great emails. I haven't got a, I haven't received a bad one yet. Okay, Janice from uh, Tennessee writes. Now she's dealing with one of the, uh, <laughs> one of the uh, issues that, that I brought up in the interview, and that was this: is that you know I basically pointed out that in Isaiah chapter eight. God commands the prophet Isaiah, by the way, it's pronounced in, uh, in modern Hebrew, Yeshayahu. But anyway, uh, the prophet Isaiah to um, write on a large stone tablet to get two reliable witnesses, Zechariah and Jeberechiah, and then name his child, uh, his infant son, you know, in a prophetic name. And all of this was as a warning to the northern kingdom of the coming invasion by Assyria that would be sent by God. And you know, and and here's here's the point of this is that the reason why I go to the greater context, and I made this point on Thursday, is that when you look at the greater context, it's clear that his parallel between the Northern Kingdom and the um, the United States breaks down because there was no prophetic word from God warning the United States of the attack that was going to take place at the hands of the terrorists, and therefore when. The United States acted in defiance. It wasn't defiance directed towards God. It was defiance directed towards the terrorists. Not you understand what I'm saying. So, um, and what when I brought this up with him in the interview, his only defense was basically say, "Now, nah, listen, I believe without any evidence whatsoever. I believe that no one in the Northern Kingdom was paying attention to Isaiah. That's his way out because." If they were paying attention to Isaiah, then what happens is he's granting me the premise, and then the parallel breaks down. I don't think he had a choice. I mean, he's he's committed with his book, and you know, for him to admit that my point was correct, well, that would cause the entire parallel, at which the Harbinger, you know, the book hinges on, you know, to break down. I mean, right in front of his eyes. So I don't, you know, so anyway. But anyway, Janice writes. She says, "Don't know if if, if it's Khan or Khan." Uh, anyway, uh, his point that Israel wasn't listening to Isaiah or that they were not informed, the rabbi is likely a cosmopolitan city dweller, and we down here in redneck country, that would be Tennessee, know very well that news can travel very fast, even without cell phones and the fiber optic internet. By the way, <laughs> uh, may, may I just chime in here and affirm, Jan, I would like to... um give a hearty amen to this and and tell an anecdotal story from my own life okay a long time ago when i was growing up you know by the way my parents divorced when i was young and uh, after my parents divorced one of the things my father did is he moved to idaho and he lived in this tiny 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 town in idaho named grangeville idaho now back when i was in junior high school that was the, the time that this story takes place 
Grangeville, Idaho had a little over 3,000 people living in that town. Now, I don't know what they're up to today, but let me tell you, a town of 3,000 people, okay, it was shocking how quickly news traveled, okay? Um, the reason why is because in a town of 3,000 people, um, the, you know, these folks talk to each other, okay? And so here's the story, all right? I was in, I had just graduated from eighth grade, okay? So I hadn't yet gone to high school, and I was visiting my father in Grangeville. And that summer when I visited him, well, there was this girl, and she was kind of cute. Now, I can't remember her name, but the, the story goes something to this effect. I thought she was cute. She thought I was cute. We were walking down the main drag of, you know, the, the main street of Grangeville, Idaho, which, by the way, is what everyone seems to do. They, if you have cars, you drive down the main street of Grangeville, Idaho. But anyway, we were walking hand in hand down Main Street of Grangeville, Idaho. And here's the idea. She thought I was cute. I thought she was cute. So we decided that we were going to do something serious. And so we held hands. Well, that we walked to the park. We chalked. We played at the park. We had a fun time. And then we walked home to our respective homes. When I got home, I was greeted at the door by my stepmother. And she proceeded to let me know that she completely disapproved of me holding hands with this young gal <laughs> and that that was behavior that was not good. And I was, I was upbraided for my terrible, you know, immoral behavior for holding this girl's hands. And I'm thinking, good night. <laughs> I mean... News traveled fast in a small town, but so yeah. So anyway, I, I bring all this up to kind of point out the fact that that uh, Jan, you are spot on. So so here's what she says: the rabbi is likely a cosmopolitan city, city dweller. We here down in redneck country know very well that news can travel very fast, even without cell phones and fiber optic internet. I think Rabbi Khan is uh, making a mistake. Uh, that we all make quite frequently. Frequently, He is seeing ancient Israel through the lenses of modern culture. I can't know whether you or he are correct about whether Israel was actually aware, but I think that you are likely right. Aside from the passing of the news in ancient times, there is a respective position. Israel was an East, uh, Eastern slash Middle Eastern culture. Respect for God's prophets was all about proportion compared to our relative disrespect for ministers. I know these are not researchable or provable points. However, the average college graduate that has an upper-level sociology class, uh, who's taken upper-level sociology classes, would agree with this. Third point, wouldn't kings have considered their responsibility to keep people informed of these things? Enough said. Jan, great points. And see, that's the idea, is that you're going to notice that that God um, made clear that, uh, well, let me put it this way. Isaiah was told not to do it just one way, but multiple ways, okay? And all of these different ways were designed to get people's attention. And so the way news travels in small towns, even if they don't agree with Isaiah the prophet, that would have become the news of the small towns in the, in, uh, in the northern kingdom. And you know, the news would have been something along the lines of this, you know, guys at work or at the city gates, you know, because remember, the prophecy was written on a large stone, okay? So somebody who had seen the stone would have said, hey, did you did you check out that stone that the prophet Isaiah 
down there in Judah put to, put together? No, what's on the stone? It says that God's going to send the king of Assyria here to sack uh, to sack the northern kingdom. Can you believe that? No, really? Oh, that prophet Isaiah, what a goober he is. Yeah, we don't we don't like that guy. He's a boogerhead. But you understand what I'm saying. So the idea is, is that there would have been a, that news would have traveled relatively quickly. And that was the whole point of putting it on a large stone and and two witnesses. And, and see the, the the conversation would have gone, "Hey, did you hear that uh Zechariah, the priest, and Jeberechiah, they're now witnesses of the stone, basically attesting to the veracity of what Isaiah is saying about the king, about Assyria coming and sacking us? No, really? Yeah, and the boy, that prophet Isaiah, you know, he's such a goon. I mean, he, you know, he, he his wife just had a baby, and you know what they named their baby? No, what they named their ba- baby? Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Who names their baby Mahal Shalal Hashbaz? That's crazy talk. You see, that's the whole point. Okay, is that there? There wasn't just one means by which they were being warned. In fact, I would basically say, based upon the fact that God required Isaiah to write it on a large stone, to have two reliable witnesses, and he named his son Mahal. You'll be anyway. Named Mahal Shalal Hashbaz. Named him that. All of these things testified to the idea that this was something that would have caught the eye of people's attention and would have been the, spread you know as news in the northern kingdom and i think it's it's really the uh, the the evidence the the burden of proof is on rabbi khan that they the people in the northern kingdom were clueless uh as opposed to basically my position with god going through all the redundancy and all this kind of stuff that would have been big news in the days before newspapers in the days before the internet, in the days before cell phones. And again, the burden of proof is really on him to show that God's word failed to reach the people in the northern kingdom because I think the more likely scenario is that it did. And because that's the more likely scenario, again, his parallel breaks down. All right, what we're going to do right now is, um, oh boy, do I want to take a break or not? No, we're not going to take a break. I'm going to switch gears right now. And this is the uh, kind of the important teaching part of the program. And on Thursday's edition of Fighting for the Faith, I was pointing to the fact that it's the church that's in covenant with Christ. It's the church that's in covenant with God, not America. And that's important because that gives us a shape of what repentance would really look like in the United States. If if the United States were to repent, that repentance must begin in the church. It must begin in the church because the church is in a covenantal relationship. Um, and so, but it's important for us to understand the nature of that covenant. And so, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to play 18 minutes of this week's. You can get this at the White Horse Inn website of this week's edition of the White Horse Inn, where Michael Horton is uh, delivering a lecture where he exegetes Romans chapter four. Now, I'm not going to get into his exegesis of Romans four, but instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the portion of the uh, of this week's edition of my uh, fight, um, of the White Horse Inn, not fighting for the faith, of the White Horse Inn, where Michael Horton explains. The backstory that helps us understand Romans chapter four, as in he takes the time to explain the uh, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ, and how we're to properly understand it. With this proper understanding of the covenants, listen, you're not you're not likely to be confused by those claiming you know or even trying tight parallels. Uh, between America and uh, and Israel regarding a covenantal relationship, not not at all, because these are the covenants of note within the Old Testament, 
and well, actually throughout the whole uh, Bible. And it's important that we talk about the New Testament. That's that's literally the the synonym there is the New Covenant. There's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and the New Covenant is in the blood of Jesus Christ, and it has a particular nature to it. So without any further ado, here is Michael Horton, Dr. Michael Horton, explaining uh, the uh, the three covenants uh, of note within the Scriptures. So turn with, with me, if you will, to Genesis 15. The context of this amazing passage is... The war that Abram has won uh, against uh, kings in the region. And after that victory, he is greeted by this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. We're told in the Psalms and then also again in Hebrews that Melchizedek is a, is a messianic figure. He's the, the king priest of Salem. Salem being... Uh, an embryonic form of Jerusalem, and he's a king priest. In the Aaronic system, established at Mount Sinai, under the law, you couldn't be a priest and a king. Melchizedek was a priest king. In so many different ways, he foreshadowed Christ, who was not from the line of Aaron, but was in the order of Melchizedek. And what's significant here is that Abram addresses Melchizedek as his lord. He treats him as his great king, his emperor, giving him a tithe, which was a a, a sign of deference. Basically, here's my tax for living on your land. And then he receives the blessing. And you only, in an ancient Near Eastern culture, receive a blessing from someone who's higher than you. So Abram was recognizing this person as his sovereign, as his king. And he was blessed by Melchizedek, who gave him a word of blessing and a meal. God has kind of kept up with that. (laughs) Word and sacrament. That's that's, That's how he convinces Abram that he will be his blessing. And then he goes on. God goes on to talk to Abram one-on-one. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. But now he finds himself believing. And the verb here is hashav, which does not mean to make righteous, but to declare righteous. Abraham believed God, not Abraham fulfilled the conditions of the treaty because there are none here. It's just a promise. I am going to do this. Abram said, I don't have any conditions that I could fulfill anyway. (laughs) Okay. I believe it. And then and there he was justified. He was declared righteous. 
The hearing of the promise created faith in the promise. But it's not enough for God to promise us through the word. He also gives Abram a visual ratification of his covenant promise. And the covenant ratification matches the words of the covenant. The words of the covenant are unilateral. I will, I will, I will. I am, I am, I am. You will be, you will be, you will be. And the ceremony goes with that. Why? Because in this case, God doesn't make the vassal king pass through the halves, accepting the burden of the curses if the covenant is broken. Instead, as the sun went down, a smoking fire pot passed through the halves. And this is a theophany where God walked down the aisle alone while Abram slept. And every step he took, that fire theophany that burned at Mount Sinai, that fire that consumed the children of Aaron in the holy sanctuary, that fire, that holy fire, every step he took down the aisle, he was assuming another set of curses listed in the contract. No wonder Abram found himself believing. It isn't a purpose he attained or a goal he achieved, but it was a promise he received. And it was a twofold promise. It was a promise, first of all, of land and a temporal nation, but it was more than that. It was the promise that beyond that typology, there would be the reality, the fulfillment of a universal and eternal kingdom of people from every tribe, kindred, tongue, people, and nation. And through you and your seed, and Paul reminds us in Galatians, he said seed, not seeds. Seed meaning Christ. Through you and your seed, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. At Mount Sinai, a different kind of covenant was made. It was still in service to this covenant of grace, but as a type and shadow. It was a temporal covenant. It was that part of that covenant that was made with Abraham that God was fulfilling at Mount Sinai. And so as a nation, Israel had a role of being a tenant, of being a lieutenant of God. A new Adam driving the serpent out of God's garden. And at Mount Sinai, the people swear the oath. God doesn't swear anything at Mount Sinai. All of these terms of the treaty are spelled out in very precise terms with 619 stipulations. Your mortgage is simpler than the Mosaic Law. If you've looked at how detailed and intricate, and it wasn't arbitrary, everything, everything there was pointing forward to Christ. It was like a bunch of mirrors and devices meant to point somehow in each way. You turn them all on at the same time, and an image of Christ appears. Every mirror, every light, every laser beam had to be working properly. And it was Israel's job to be that type not to be the ultimate fulfillment in the land, the earthly land, but to be the type, to lead 
Israelites and indeed the whole world to faith in the coming Messiah. But they swore the promise. All this we will do. Well, and that's as it should be. It's, that was that kind of a covenant. Our nation is entering into a covenant with God who has been so blessed as we have as Israelites that we have a covenant with our God that the creator of the whole universe has made a covenant with us and that we are his people it was gracious that God brought them into the land it was gracious that God gave them the land but it was theirs to keep or to lose by works and you see that in the way that the covenant all this we will do they assume the curses they assume they assume all the responsibilities for fulfilling it and then what does Moses do the text says and Moses turned to them and splashed blood upon them saying in accordance with all the words you have spoken all this we will do the sacrament fit the word the word of the covenant was all this we will do and the sacrament was blood be on you if you fail to keep the terms of this treaty and in Jeremiah as Israel did fail to keep the terms of the treaty we read and I will make you now Israel pass between the pieces hard words Hosea 6 7 like Adam you have broken my covenant not a faithful steward in God's house national blessing now national curse because Israel hasn't kept it and the only thing in the prophets the only thing that keeps this story going in spite of Israel's consistent breaking of the covenant of law is that there is another covenant a covenant of grace established four centuries before that which will be fulfilled because God himself passed through the pieces and that's why in the prophets you read again and again and again, not for your sake, you stiff-necked people, but for the sake of the promise that I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Not the one you swore that you broke at Mount Sinai, but the one I swore for the sake of my faithfulness and my covenant mercy. It won't always be like this. And Jeremiah 31 prophesies that new day, that great new covenant, and explicitly says, it will not be like the covenant that you swore at Mount Sinai. It will be a new covenant. How? Well, he goes on to say, it makes it very clear. For in that day, I will give you a new heart. I will write my law on your heart. And all of this ultimately predicated on the fact that in that day, I will forgive all of your sins. I will never remember your iniquities again. That is the covenant that keeps everything moving forward. That is the covenant that Jesus fulfills in the upper room when he says, this is the blood of my new covenant shed for you for a full remission of all of your sins. Drink ye all of it. He drank the cup of wrath so that we could drink the cup of blessing.
The cup of blessing which we bless, Paul says, is it not a communion of the blood of Christ? You see, that's, that's, we, he becomes the sacrificial lamb we consume. He gives himself, his body, for us. And he ratifies that every single time we gather as God's people on the Lord's Day for worship. He ratifies that publicly again in his word and in his sacrament. Here the blood is not splashed on us, it's splashed on him. He was sealing his death warrant. Or rather announcing to them that his death was now sealed. He passed through the pieces. Fulfilling the promise he made to Abraham. And so that is what Paul has swimming around in his mind when he says, Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, accomplished nothing. It is Abraham, the father of faith, who is our example. It is inasmuch as he was a recipient of pure grace that he is our example and father in the faith. It's as if to say, have you, have you guys really read the stories of Abraham? Maybe he could, he could boast before us. I mean, he was pretty significant in world history, but not before God. If you've read the passages, if you've read the story, you can't surely say, that Abraham somehow stacked up a bunch of frequent flyer points for us. He had his own guilt to deal with. Surely he couldn't have created a bank account for us. But Jesus did. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. And then he walked through the pieces to assume our debt, to bear our curses. And therefore, Paul says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is what's so absolutely scandalous about the gospel. It was scandalous then, it's scandalous now. People will readily believe that religion might be necessary for some people to have a more meaningful, fulfilled life. They might even reckon that there is a judgment up ahead. And in that judgment, God will accept those who are imperfect. They've tried, they've done their best. God justifies those who are on the way. God justifies those who mean well. Um, God justifies those who are, who are sincere and really want to do the right thing. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says God justifies the ungodly. Now That's crazy talk. Yes. That God might justify people who have bad hair days. That, that, that he might, you know, be, be, be nice and gracious to those who haven't perfectly kept his law. People will readily grant that, especially to save their own skin. That's not what Paul says. Paul says that God justifies the ungodly. He says, do you realize what's going on here? Abraham was one of the ungodly too. Do you realize what's going on here? We're not talking about a contract. 
We're talking about a last will and testament. That's what Paul says. To one who works, his wages aren't counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. See, we're not employees working on a contract basis. We are heirs waiting for an inheritance. It's a completely different operation. Most people think that religion is about a contract. I grew up in very well-meaning Bible-believing churches that treated salvation as a contract. If you raise your hand or you pray this prayer, or you, you really meant this in your heart, uh, you really, really this, or you, you know, there are the terms of it. You could even, at the back of a tract, sign your name. It's like it was a contract. And, and that's how we treat Christ a lot of times. He's he sort of services rendered. Uh, you know, he, he promises to do a few things for us. We promise to do a few things for him. This will work out pretty well. This is not a contract. We're not employees. There's an inheritance. We're poor. He's rich. And for our sakes, he became poor. And as writer to the Hebrews says, in order for a last will and testament to go into effect, it's generally the case that the one who made it has to die. And that's what happened when Jesus died on the cross. When the, court, when, when the curtain was torn, the estate went into probate. <laughs> All of the gifts were poured out. We've inherited an estate. The form of the covenant we're in is the covenant of grace, which is a last will and testament. What happens when you get a last will and testament? You go in, somebody, you know, a lawyer, someone appointed, reads the will to you. It's not like a contract. They're not saying, now, if you do this, I'll do that. For such and such money, I will render such and such service. No, you basically don't have much to do when you're an heir. You just you go and you sit there and someone reads to you what you have inherited. Of course you have to do your finances. Of course you have to plan your future. But when it comes to your relationship with God, you're a recipient. You're an heir. Don't sweat. He will discipline you because he's your father. What father loves his kids and doesn't discipline them? That's just another sign of his grace, his favor that he cares for you. Don't think of him as a judge. He's not your judge anymore. If you trust in Christ, he's not your judge. He's your father. Just enjoy the, the will, reading the will, hearing the will. We live joyfully, not out of fear, not out of calculation, but with Abram finally shutting up, sitting down, hearing God speak, watching him ratify his promise to us, Verse 21, being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Amen. All right. Now, all of that, you know, the last 18 minutes of the program was designed to help you get into your mind the biblical concept of covenant and what's at play here and what's really biblically the right way to frame this. And see... Ultimately, the harbinger and it and those who are 
somehow drawing these tight parallels between the United States and Israel, they're confusing the biblical categories of what the covenant is and what it's all about. What is the covenant of note right now? So here's the idea. The United States is not in a covenant relationship with the, uh, with God the way Israel was, plain and simple. The church is. And that covenant relationship is the covenant relationship where we are the ones who inherit an inheritance by virtue of Christ's death. God fulfills his promises to Abraham that the whole world will be blessed through him. God is the one who justifies and declares sinners and the wicked to be righteous. And this is done on account of the shed blood of Christ. That's the covenant of note. If you don't understand this, then what happens is is that you easily fall into the bizarre ideas that are completely misinformed and misguided regarding what the Bible teaches regarding covenant. So what's the covenant community that needs to repent? The church. Those who've been brought to faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and that repentance is a true returning to the Lord. And it comes by casting out, rebuking, and disciplining those who are teaching false doctrine, rejecting them and not rewarding them with power and money and influence, and replacing them with pastors who preach the word, sound biblical doctrine, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, and rightly teach the covenant that we have with God by virtue of the death and blood of Jesus Christ. All of that is what's necessary to understand rightly what's wrong with the book, The Harbinger. Okay, we're up on our second break, and if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. When we come back, a good, good sermon that I think just ties all this up in a neat little bow by Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley. You're not going to want to miss it. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lacks comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater of the Budgie Cuts. Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. <coughs> You'll laugh. <laughs> You'll scream. And you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. 
Like right now. If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, the heck with this commercial. I'm off to buy it right now. Get back in here. We're not done yet. Max Holiday's Birdcage Dinner, The Budget Cuts Part 2. Disapproved of by heretics everywhere. Get it before they do. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. By the way, we're way past the uh, the hour mark. Apparently, I need a clock. Not really. It's just I like my format because it gives me the ability to kind of move things around as long as I somewhat end close to the same time <laughs> every day. I would drive terrestrial radio stations crazy. <clears throat> anyway, let's cue this up and do this right. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Bethel Evangelical Free Church, Hanley Stokon Trent in, in the United Kingdom, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley presiding. The name of the sermon is Which is Easier to Say? Which is Easier to Say? Now, I picked this sermon because it yeah, it's a just a fantastic gospel sermon, but Pastor Charmley is exegeting the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. He will read them prior to preaching, and then hang on for, like, a melt-your-face-off gospel sermon. No kidding. It's just, and it completely fits perfectly with what you just heard Dr. Horton say regarding the covenants. Mucho importante. So... Anyway, let's, um, without any further ado, let's kill the music here. Here's Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley in his sermon entitled, Which is Easier to Say? Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel according to Mark and chapter 2. Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. Mark has been speaking of works of the Lord Jesus, but also this confusion that people had as to what his mission was. The crowds thought that he was a healer, and they viewed him as such, and they came to him for healing, forgetting his work as a teacher. And now in chapter 2 we have a new element introduced, which is the element of opposition from the Jewish leadership. So Mark's Gospel and chapter 2. And again he, that is Jesus, entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together, so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic, who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was, So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there, reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easy to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, why do the disciples of John of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but new wine must be put into new wineskins. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. He said to them, The Sabbath was, not, was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. We trust God to add his blessing for the reading of his most holy word. Our text this morning is found in the chapter we read, Mark's Gospel, chapter 2 and verse 9. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk? This account of the healing of the paralytic man is in many ways surprising. We would expect that Jesus' words to this man who was unable to walk for quite some time, his first words would be, get up and walk. But his first words are, son, your sins are forgiven you. Because Jesus can see far deeper than we can. 
We look and we see people suffering physically in many ways. And the first thing we think of is that their need is physical. But Jesus sees the first need we have is spiritual. He doesn't discount the physical. Quite the reverse. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. God does not devalue the physical. But he says the first and most important thing with any human being is not what their state of health is. Not what their bank balance may be, but what their state before God is. Whether or not your sins are forgiven, this is the most important thing in the world. The pardon of sins. And for this reason Jesus came into the world, that he might take away our sins. And this was what the people of Jesus' day, the crowds, missed. They saw a man who could heal. They saw a man who could multiply a few loaves and a few fishes into a meal more than enough for thousands. And they said, that's what we need. We need the physical, we need the health, the wealth, the prosperity. But Jesus says, no, you need your sins forgiven. You need the pardon of sin. And here, of course, the religious authorities rise up as well. The first time we have opposition. Because the religious authorities see in Jesus a challenge to their own position. And here in this well-known, well-loved account from Mark's Gospel, we have a healing that's not about healing, but about the forgiveness of sins and Jesus' power, his authority to pardon and to forgive. So we have here, first of all, a surprising answer. Secondly, we have suspicious antagonism. And thirdly, we have a startling authority. So first we have this surprising answer. Here are these, <coughs> these four men who have been looking after their friend who was a paralytic. We don't know how long. We don't know why he was paralysed. Was it an injury to his back? Had he fallen over? Broken his back and lost the use of his legs? Was it an illness that had affected his nervous system? We don't know. The point is, he was a paralytic, he couldn't walk. And had to be carried. And yet these men cared for him, looked after him, they were concerned for him. They were good friends. And they were good friends who believed in Jesus. Now indeed, they did not <coughs> believe in him in the fullest sense of believing him to be the, the saviour of mankind, being the son of God coming to the world. But they, they trusted him. They knew he could heal. And so they came with this determination that their friend would be healed. 
and this determination reached the point where they were willing to tear the roof of the house in order to bring their friend to Jesus. It was probably, as I said, the children Simon Peter's house. The same house that we see Jesus in, in chapter 1. And you can imagine that Simon Peter and his family would have been <coughs> most upset about this. You've got these people tearing a hole in your roof to get to Jesus. But they have a determination that they will bring their friend to Christ no matter what. But all they think, all they think of is Jesus will heal. Jesus can heal. So they lower the man through the roof, lower him down to Jesus. And Jesus sees the man and he saw their faith, not just the faith of the, the four friends, but the faith that this paralytic man had to allow his four friends to lower him through the roof because it would have been an uncomfortable, possibly dangerous experience. One slip and he would have been dropped onto the heads of the people there or dropped onto the hard earth floor. But he has the faith to endure this in order to come to Jesus. <coughs> and he sees, and Jesus says, yes, this is unformed faith, this is faith that doesn't really understand who Jesus is, yet it's faith, it's trust that he is able. And so Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven you. A surprising answer to a man who was seeking to be healed. Your sins are forgiven you. Because Jesus will not stop with the superficial. He will not stop with the outward, with what men see. But he came into the world to restore our relationship with God. To bring people to God. His whole ministry is about the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle John says in his first epistle that Christ was manifested to take away our sins. His whole mission is about the forgiveness of sins. And so he says to this man, your sins are forgiven. And this is our great unfelt need. Great need that the world does not feel. But the greatest need of all is that we stand in a right relation to God. For God did not send Christ into the world just to heal a few people. Did not send Christ into the world to change political structures. He sent his Son into the world that we might be saved. That we might be brought out of darkness into the light of the gospel of Christ. He was manifested to take away our sins. Your sins are forgiven you. And that is what you and I need to hear. That word, your sins are forgiven you. It's not enough to have a few benefits 
unless our sins are forgiven. What does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world but lose his own soul, says Jesus? What does it matter if someone should be rich and famous and powerful and die in their sins? And you see, the tendency of the human mind is today as it was then to be so superficial. You ask the majority of people what they would like to be and they would like to win the lottery, to be rich. But I tell you, what shall it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? What happens when we must stand before God, our Creator, and give an account of the things that we have done, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? And Christ came to the world to save sinners. To bring us to God. Unless we know our sins forgiven, it doesn't matter what we may have. He is a Saviour. Is He our Saviour? The story is told, I've told it before, of Bishop Butler, the great 18th century writer, theologian, apologist, defender of the faith. As he was dying, he was tormented with terrible doubts. His chaplain came to him and said to him, Sir, remember that Christ is a saviour. Oh, very true, said the bishop, very true. But is he my saviour? Ah, said the chaplain, remember what Christ said. He who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And the bishop said, indeed. And now I die happy, for I have come to Christ, and he will never cast me out. There was a man who had accomplished very much, he'd been a bishop, a great theologian, yet he died as we all must die. Without the only question being, is Christ your Saviour and your Lord? Have you this forgiveness of sins through Jesus? And so we come then to the suspicious antagonism of the scribes. They were the religious leaders of the Jews. <coughs> Generally not always identified with the Pharisees. They were, unlike the, uh, the priests who had their position by inheritance, by the law, the scribes had their position only by the acclaim of the people. Only as long as the people supported them did they have any power. And so they were jealous of anyone who was popular. As they had been jealous of John the Baptist, so they were of Christ. And so they sent their people to check up on him, to see what he was teaching. And here they are watching, and Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven you. They, in their own hearts, say, Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Because sins are against God. Now, if give an example, if somebody breaks your window, then only you can forgive them for breaking the window. Because the offence was against you. I cannot say to somebody who has broken somebody else's window, I forgive you. Nothing to do with me. 
In the same way, sin is against God, and only God can say, I forgive your sins. Who but God can forgive sins, indeed, they're right. But of course, they fail to see, to understand that this is because Jesus Christ is God. He brings these great manifestations of the divine power. He is God. God with us, Emmanuel. And so he responds to them. And you notice that Mark says quite specifically these thoughts were in the men's hearts. It wasn't that the scribes were muttering to one another. They were thinking this. They were reasoning in their hearts. But Jesus knew their hearts, for he knows the hearts of men, and that is itself a miracle. You and I cannot see the hearts of others, but Christ can. God looks on the heart, and he knows. And Christ says to them, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. And of course what he means is, both are easy enough to say. Anyone can say any old rubbish they like. But of course, if someone says, get up, take your bed and walk, we expect that the bed to be taken up and the paralytic to get up and walk. So on one level, the level the scribes were thinking, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven because no man can see that on the human level. It's easy to say that. But of course on the divine level it's quite different. Because the forgiveness of sins requires the blood of Christ. Without the shedding of blood there is no remission. There can be no forgiveness without a sacrifice. That is the consistent testimony of the Bible. There must be a substitute. There must be one who bears our sins in our place that we may be forgiven. There must be the cross raised on Calvary. Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or arise, take up your bed and walk. Well, we have the elements of the Lord's Supper on the table, and they declare it is easier to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk. For, there, for, the, for the healing of the body, there need be no broken body of Christ, no shed blood of Christ, such as are figured to us here, as are shown to us in the Lord's Supper. But for our sins to be forgiven, his body must be broken on the cross. His blood must be shed. There must be the death of Christ that we may be forgiven. We can indeed never get any, anywhere beyond that beautiful children's hymn, He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good. We might go at last to heaven, saved by his precious blood. How many 
thousands, if not millions of Christians have on their deathbed been comforted by those very words. He died that we might be forgiven. Which is easier? It is far easier for God to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk to a paralytic, than for God to say to you and me, Your sins are forgiven. And yet he says it, for he has done everything necessary. He has sent his son to the cross of Calvary. Jesus has died. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. God must become man. The God-man must die that our sins may be forgiven. Which is easier? Oh, God alone could tell you that. The agony in the garden, the agony in bloody sweat, the agony of the cross, and far, far more the agony of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is harder? It is far harder for God to forgive sin. For if there were some other way, God would have taken it. We would have no time for someone who, when there was some other way, gave up their son to die. Was there no other way? There was no other way. Was there no other means of pardon? There was no other means of pardon. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. That blood was shed. That all who believe in Christ may be forgiven. He died that we might be forgiven. And these scribes, they thought nothing of it. They knew nothing of it. That there is pardon and there is a life in the blood of Christ alone. And so we come to the startling authority of Jesus Christ. That you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And he turns to the paralytic and says, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. But you see, the whole point of the miracle is the forgiveness of sins. The miracle is simply to prove that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And that word power, of course, it can mean authority. And here it has that force of authority. Indeed, in, in the Greek, there is really only one word for power and authority. There is another word for power, dunamis, this is not it. This is exousia, which means power in the sense of authority. And Christ here is saying that he has the authority, the legal power to forgive sins. Because he is the Son of Man and the Son of God. And of course all this requires the healing and the pardon to be two completely different things. It was left for the liberals of the 19th and 20th centuries to come up with the idea that the healing of the pardon were the same thing. 
as if they are, as if arise, take up your bed and walk, and your sins are forgiven, are equivalent phrases. Well, I do not know where they studied linguistics, but I think common sense tells us that they are not saying the same thing. No, Christ is saying the forgiveness of sins is completely separate from this healing of the body. And so we look and we see that Christians suffer, as non-Christians do, all kinds of illnesses and diseases, all kinds of injuries, and must, for the most part, get well the same way everybody else does, with the common means that God has provided. For the forgiveness of sins and the healing of the body are two completely different things. First of all, this is not some psychosomatic condition, but the man felt his sins were so terrible that he couldn't walk. That is, reading something of the text is not there, that is, people do not believe that Christ has the power to heal the body. They say, well, we don't believe he has the power to heal, therefore there must be something else going on here. That is rank unbelief. Secondly, however, Christ may forgive without healing the body. And there is a blast against those people who say, unless you are living a healthy and wealthy life, there's something wrong with you as a Christian. Paul had a thorn in the flesh that God never took away from him. We look at many of the great hymn writers of the past, many of them had physical conditions, which we sing in conclusion, Rock of Ages, and Augustus Top Lady, who wrote it, was never well, died at an early age from his many diseases. And are we to say that these people were not true Christians? No. We are to say that the forgiveness of sins and the healing of the body are two different things. And the one thing needful is the forgiveness of sins. For Christ did not come into the world primarily as a healer. The point of this miracle is not the healing. It is the forgiveness of sins. It is that which matters more than anything else in the world that we be right with God. That for our sins have separated us from God, but Christ, by taking away our sins, brings us near to God. Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. That is the testimony of the scripture. And the startling thing is this, that he who is the son of David is the son of God, that Jesus Christ is God with us, Emmanuel. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he came to bring this blessing of pardon, this forgiveness of sins, this pardon bought by Jesus' blood. And that is why the great central act of Christian worship is the Lord's table. That is why weekly we come to this table. Why weekly every believer comes to the Lord's table. Because 
the centre of our faith is that which this table proclaims Christ crucified for sinners we have the bread and the cup the things by which we live signifying to us that we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us that we live because of this pardon for sins in Jesus' blood. And so we come weekly to be reminded, to have this remembrance that Christ has given us, of his blessed death, that we might be forgiven. And this table stands as a great declaration and if the pulpit of the table disagree, woe to the pulpit. The table speaks of sins forgiven. It speaks of sin. And it speaks of the need for forgiveness. And woe betide the pulpit that does not proclaim the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' blood. For this is why he came. That we might be forgiven that we might be cleansed in his precious blood, that we might be brought into that life eternal, that life to come. Because indeed there is a resurrection for the dead coming, a resurrection of the dead, and then those who have this pardon shall be raised incorruptible, as Paul puts it. That our bodies shall be made like unto Christ's glorious body. And all our diseases, disabilities taken away. But only, only for those whose sins have been forgiven is that promise, that resurrection unto life. For those who have not, it does not matter how healthy they have been. There is an eternal punishment as well. And all who are not forgiven, they shall go into that eternal punishment. Whatever the state of their bodies, whatever their health and wealth, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? It shall profit him nothing. But Christ, Christ shall profit a man everything. For Christ brings the forgiveness of sins and the life everlasting. He has the power to forgive and nobody else. He came to shed his blood that we might be forgiven. And the hardest thing to say for God is that word, your sins are forgiven you. And yet, he has said it. Yet, he has sent his Son that he might proclaim that forgiveness. That whoever believes in Christ shall not perish, but have everlasting life with the forgiveness of those sins. And so indeed, those who know their sins forgiven, we shall come shortly to the table of the Lord in thanksgiving. He has pardoned our sins.
in Jesus' blood and by his broken body. And to him then be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. I never tire of hearing what Christ has done for us and of the forgiveness of sins through his shed blood on the cross. That gospel never gets old. Not when you understand that you have no standing before God if it were not for Christ fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant and us being brought into covenantal relationship with God through his shed blood and through the inheritance that we have as a gift given by Christ and what he's done for us. Mm, 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 mm. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>